Welcome to On the Tape. I'm Guy Adami. You can tell by the great radio voice that I have. Joined as always by my dear friends, Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. This week on the tape, we have to talk about the slew of earnings coming up next week. We obviously have to talk about market volatility. And where would we be if we didn't talk about Bitcoin and Ethereum? And oh, by the way, Danny Moses is once again going to rip off the tape. Rot for you on the tape fans. And in the back end, we're going to be joined by our dear friend, CNBC's Melissa Lee. Stick around. Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Guy, hold on a second. So you're doing sports radio now. You do fast money. You do this. You do that. What's your favorite thing these days? I'm amphibious, as they say. I can go left or right, multitasking, (laughs) multifaceted. Earlier this week, Danny Moses, as you clearly know, you're feigning ignorance, but I sat in in the 8 o'clock hour on the Boomer and Geo morning show, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m., WFAN 101.9 on your dial, simulcast on CBS (laughs) Sports Network. And yes, I sat in, and I will tell you in a word, if I had to describe it, seamless, Seamless. Did they have you on because your NBA predictions have been so incredible? I mean, did you end up giving a prediction on that show that may have been wrong? No, I actually, listen, I know. Okay, you can dig me a little bit. I thought the Sons of Phoenix would win that series. I thought they'd win it in six. Obviously, the Bucks of Milwaukee emerged victorious. Good for them. They were the better of the two teams. And yes, I thoroughly enjoyed this NBA championship because it was basketball that brought me back to the 90s when people were just mugging each other. And every every possession was contested, unlike the video game that the NBA has been turned into in the regular season. Is this like this transformation? You've been on TV, financial TV, for like decades now. 36 all sudden, years. All of a sudden, 2021, you start a podcast and you start popping up on Boomer and Geo on the fan. Is this like that whole saying? What is that saying that he's got a real face for radio? Is that what's going on are here? You familiar, are you bit? familiar with the existentialist Franz Kafka? You might recall no. a, <laughs> a a short story called The Metamorphosis. And perhaps I am Gregor Samsa. Perhaps I am turning from human into bug. Maybe that's what you're seeing before your very eyes. That's a great poll for all you Jesuit educated people out there. (laughs) Go G-Town. Let's do this here. The week got started off, at least in the markets, with a bit of a bang. We saw some panic selling on Monday, and then it really turned into panic buying from here on out. Can we discuss this here a little bit? I know, Guy, that you are exercised, as you like to say, about the volatility in rates. Let's start with rates, and then let's talk about the stock market. U.S. 10-year yield should be the most liquid asset on planet Earth, but they're trading like a biotech stock, a binary biotech stock. From 145 down to 120, up to 130, to 120, to 135, 115, 138. It's madness. And this has all taken place, I would say, in approximately 20 trading sessions or so. You can't tell me, neither one of you can tell me that at some point, bond volatility, which is off the charts, is not going to manifest itself into equity volatility. We have seen over the last three to five years, taper talk, things like that, really move the 10-year 
this was a microcosm of everything that's happened. What I think it's really interesting is that going into the weekend, maybe it was an obvious trade, maybe it wasn't, but you almost had the playbook out. So you knew that virus cases were going to spike. I mean, we kind of knew that going into the weekend, what would the setup be coming in for Monday? It was an option expiration Friday, which always tells me when people come in, they're less protected when they come in because they let these things expire because put options have just been a waste of money on the market for a very long time now and came in and guess what? That's exactly what happened. But what's interesting is people are equating the second quarter earnings, which have been strong with, oh, there's nothing to see here. Well, the nothing to see here didn't really start happening until early July in the last two weeks. This kind of potential slowdown. But what it has done is it's given the Fed complete cover now. So any talk about tapering is gone right now, in my opinion, because we're going to have to have this variant play out. So we're not going to get it on this next meeting next week. We're not going to get much talk of it at Jackson Hole because I think this virus is going to be around a little bit. And here's the last thing I'll tell you. I said this before. The people that are managing money and then live in the big cities and live in the you know expensive neighborhoods, they're vaccinated. They don't think like other people do. And they, and they think selfishly that, ah, you know what? These people that aren't vaccinated, they're, they're getting the virus. Tough for them. Doesn't affect me. I'm going to move on. I think that's their mindset. And I think that's why the money ended up pouring back into the market the last few days. Yeah, and it happened pretty quickly. I mean, Guy just said that this bond volatility is likely to manifest itself into equity volatility. The fact that literally we had less than a 4% peak to trough decline from last week's all-time highs to the lows on Tuesday morning just tells you, to your point, Danny, the people that are managing big monies, the people that are putting the inputs in those algos, they're not protecting particularly worried about a Delta variant, at least as it relates to the here and now. Might it cause fits and starts? I think that it's interesting to think about it through a broader lens, not just the U.S. We know that there's large parts of this country where vaccination rates are very low, but to, I think everyone would agree that we're not shutting down again. We're just going forward. But the real issue, if you think about one of the, the fears about inflation and some of the bottlenecks that we've had in supply chains, is that there's large parts of the developed world where vaccination rates are very low. So we might not see the sort of linear global recovery that a lot of people expect in the back half of 2021 into 2022. And I guess that's the real fear. But at least as it relates to equities, there have been corrections. And we've been talking about it on on the show for months now. I mean, how many groups, how many different sectors in the stock market, whether it be small caps, whether it be these kind of rolling corrections that we've seen. And we saw it in oil. And that was another one we've been talking about. The oil stocks, the OIH, the oil services, that was down 20%. That was a full on serious correction. And that was before crude oil ever took a dip. So, you know, again, there's been large pockets within the stock market that have corrected. It's for some reason not manifested itself into the major indices. Yeah. Well, this coming week, we obviously have a lot to talk about. Your F mega complex, Dan Nathan. You got Fed meeting, got all kinds of stuff. We're going to preview that because I do think it's important, but I also do want to touch on crude because you brought up a very good point. The stock's Typically, this is just my opinion, but it's something that I've seen in my last 47 or so years on Wall Street. Typically, the commodity leads the stocks. In this case, quite frankly, the stocks have led the commodity and they led it in a meaningful way. You look at the sell-off in some of these levered plays like a PSX, for example, even ExxonMobil and Chevron, they all sold off significantly before the commodity did. It just makes me wonder, is the worst over for the equities and we see a bounce in the commodity? I would submit we are. But Dan, Nathan, you put up a great 13-year downtrend chart in crude that we touched up to the penny, as Carter Worth would said, and failed. I think we ratchet through. And oh, by the way, don't kid yourself. Don't think because yields have come down, the Fed's got this thing right. I would submit anything but. It's given them a little air cover, but only that. I think they've bought themselves a little bit of time. 
in the middle of all this, there was a bond auction, which happens all the time, but it was, a, I think it was $24 billion on Wednesday, auction of 20 year, and it was pretty soft from bid to cover ratio. So that in the middle of all that, when yields that hit 113 kind of moved back towards the 130 level, that was kind of thrown in there in the middle. I don't know what that's a sign of necessarily, but maybe it's a, obviously at 113, people's appetite to own the long bond or 20-year bond isn't that strong. But I will say that between oil, rates, stocks, crypto, the amount of volatility that's been in the market is tremendous. That presents opportunity if you can set up and understand the fundamentals of these companies. And like I said before, the playbook was brought back out, the miniature playbook, the owning of the Pelotons of the world that you want to own if you get holed up at home again came out. It faded pretty fast. So it's going to be really interesting to see. And at this point, all of us know somebody who's been vaccinated and who has since contracted the virus. They got a little cold and it wasn't, they're not hospitalized. So the vaccine works. And so I think that's giving people comfort as well. All right. Let's talk about this F MAGA. This is the Facebook, the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google, the Amazon. Did you back into that? When you created that, did you back into it? In your mind, you said, I, you know, you were saying F MAGA. And then you said, let me see if I can get a s- stocks associated with F MAGA. It's brilliant, by the way. It's a great job by you. You were on the set with me, guy. It was September of 2018. And I just was getting sick. Listen, Kramer, he coined Fang and it was genius. And it wasn't really about market cap at the time. It was about monopoly, right? It was about these companies that were just absolutely dominating. But as the tech behemoths kept on getting bigger and bigger and they all crossed that $1 trillion mark, I was like, listen, we don't need Netflix anymore. We got to focus on these big dogs. And that's what I did. So I came up with MAGA. I was always thinking about F MAGA, as you know. And as soon as Facebook started creeping up above a half a trillion dollars, that's when I threw the F and the apostrophe in there. But let's just talk about what Danny just said about getting in tune with the fundamentals here. And we know that a lot of the pandemic winners last year, these tech behemoths, have also obviously done very well this year. But it's interesting because we've talked about over the last two weeks, Apple and Amazon finally made new all-time highs. These are two companies that have gained more than 20% since mid-May. Think about that in market cap terms. That's close to a trillion dollars, these two stocks. But here's the thing. They both underperform the NASDAQ and the S&P, which I think is really interesting. They're both hanging out at these sort of breakout levels. But here's what I think investors are going to key on when we get earnings next week is that Apple, for instance, okay, if we're starting to look about post-pandemic normalization of earnings, they're going to see a material earnings deceleration. I think low single digits as far as earnings are concerned and low single digits as far as revenues. That's for fiscal year 2022. The stock trades near 28 times. So my question to you guys, this guy likes to say, jump ball. What the heck are they going to have to put up for this past quarter and for their earnings guidance to get this stock to go up meaningfully after the 20% plus rise that it's had in two months. Danny, that jump ball's to you. I mean, you're the short of the two of us, so I'm just going to allow you to have the jump ball. It's sort of like- <laughs> You would win the jump ball. Yeah, please. I just think these are monster behemoths. They're flight to safety stocks. It's going to take so much to move these things from a market cap perspective. Each of them have their own issues. There's antitrust issues. There could be a manufacturing issue for phones in China if it slows down or some type of issue. So, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into it, but I really just think that they're safety nets at this point and they have tons of cash and they're viewed that way. So Danny, let me ask you this. So do you think, again, Apple and Amazon, they had these massive rips from mid-May and that's really when we started to see small caps take a leg lower. We saw a lot of more cyclical areas go lower and we also saw rates go precipitously lower. So do you think this was a flight to safety? Yes, I think it's a flight to safety. And if people want to keep their money in the market, that's where it goes. Plus, 
by nature, you have all these ETFs that are geared towards those top five, top six, you know, names. And it's just, it's self-fulfilling. If money stays in the market or moves out, let's say of Russell into something that looks like the S&P or something looks like the Qs just because they people think it's a flight to safety, that's what happens. And so that's really all you're seeing, I think, was a shift from the Russell 2000. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I know the small cap names got hit that day and a move into those names. I think you bring up a good point. For some reason, there's something about Apple that really just uh, twerks me. Is that it? Or tweaks me? What's a phrase that you tweaks, tw- does the triggers? I don't know what it is. You know what? I'll tell you why. Because everybody thinks, oh, Apple is so transformative. It's changed. My Apple's been so good to me. Oh, you got to own it, not trade it. First of all, I get that. Apple, as we speak, is probably at an all-time high. Apple's also had at least, I think, Dan, and you can back me up on this, three or four different 25 to 35% uh, percent peak to trough declines over the last few years. So to think you just own it is foolish because statistically and factually, there have been opportunities to trade it. And I get the feeling we're on the verge of one now, given the huge run we have. And if for whatever reason, they miss on something or if services revenue is instead of 21% of overall revenue, 16%. You see how fast this stock goes down. Well, you know, that's a really great point. Last summer, you remember in August, these mega cap techs had this crazy month. Everyone was scratching their head. They just couldn't understand why Apple literally went from 90 to September 2nd above like 135. Literally, that happened in a month and a half from their earnings. And you know what happened in September? The stock went down 20 5%. I mean, that is a massive move for a single name, the largest name in the entire market. And then it had a 20% peak to drop decline from January to its lows in mid-March. So the stock has definitely been volatile. Amazon has been trading in a very volatile range. It did just break out last week, but it's still hanging out at that breakout level. I just think it's important to remember what Danny just said. These five names make up 25% of the weight of the S&P 500 and nearly 50% of the weight of the NASDAQ 100. There are other names, though, that I like. And Facebook happens to be one. And I say it on the show. I've said it here. I find everything about Facebook from management down to just it's something about it that I find. And the word I use is reprehensible. The one thing I like about Facebook is the stock. And they're going to earn about $15.5, close to $16 a share you throw a 25 multiple on that thing, you're talking about a $390 to a $400 stock. I think Facebook probably trades there. The other one that I'm not nearly as exercised about, the one that actually I use apparently, if, like when we do our podcast, you got to use this, this what do they call it, a search engine or something to get up the Chrome, something like that, is the Google. And they're going to earn $100 a share. You throw a 30 multiple on that, which by the way, I don't think successive. And you're talking about a $3,000 stock. So out of your F mega complex, the ones that stick out to me on the bull side of the ledger are Facebook and the Google. F this. Let's talk about volatility. Can we talk about volatility? <laughs> yeah, do it, man. Without, I mean, because the one thing we've talked about in this market, the inverse to the S&P is volatility, right? With the market, it's staircase up, elevator down. You got to be there on that day. So if you saw the VIX, obviously, on Monday shot up, I don't know, 18 to 25 in the front month. And you know, if you look up, it's just continuous deterioration in terms of down, 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 up, back down, 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 and up. But there's a couple products I want to talk to you guys about. Danny, I know you're a little upset, but this is a great opportunity for you to do something we call ROT, which stands for, if you're new to On The Tape, rip off the tape. Danny Moses. Yes. Yeah, so Monday, when all the hell was breaking loose in the markets and vol were shooting up, I saw this little note that UBS is paying a small fine, small for in the sense of UBS and Wall Street, not, not small in the sense of absolute money. million in fines over a compliance failure 
because they were marketing the VXX, which I'll get into in a, in a second, to clients kind of as an equity or as a fund as opposed to what it is, which is an electronically traded note, an, an ETN. So they paid that. Then I looked and I'm like, where's this VIX been? Where's this VXX been going? So the VXX was is a note issued by Barclays years ago, and it tracks basically the short-term moves in the VIX. So like 95% of it's the front month. So right now it's like 95% comprised of the August VIX and 5% September. The long-term chart of this thing, if you hold it over a period of time, is an unmitigated disaster. It's down 80% or something in the, over the past year. It's down 56% year to date. Why? Because it costs so much to trade VIX futures that you're letting Barclays do it for you. So this can only be a short-term trade, but People need to understand that this thing had a one for four reverse split. It goes down so much, they keep having to do a reverse split to make it a marketable security. So this is a product that, is it a cool product for a day or two? Sure. But you cannot buy a product like this and hold it because of the massive deterioration and the cost associated with it. And I found it ironic that UBS got fined on the same day that, or they paid the fine on the same day that the VIX was shooting up. And it made me look. And again, Look at these ETFs, or in this case, look at these e- ETNs and, and what they really are and the cost to maintain them. That if you just, if, if VIX stayed flat for a long period of time, you would lose five to 7% a month. So that's my rot on some of these products that are out there. I'm sure you guys have talked about this thing in the past. We talk about it on CNBC's Fast Money from time to time, but you know, you got me thinking because you're a gambler. I know you like the craps. You go to the casinos, you probably have like the nice jacket. My sense is, Danny Moses, when you go to the casino, you got a jacket, then you have a shirt unbuttoned down to like your navel. You look like Engelbert Humperdinck or something, but you saunter over to a craps table and you and I both know the biggest sucker bet at the craps table is like 12, 11, twos and threes. And obviously craps. if you, thank you. And yeah. obviously you get to sort of, you play that every time you're going to bleed away every once in a while you hit it. Not unlike what you just described. You got to hit that VXX sucker cold in order to win. But statistics will say, you're just going to, it's just going to bleed away. I know a lot of very sophisticated vol traders who are trained in derivative theory, and they would sell those things to you all day long. They know what they're constructed. They know how they're constructed. It's a product really created, I think, to just, like Danny said, to just lure in retail and kind of think that they have some form of market hedge on. But when it's doing nothing, it is bleeding away. And, you know, we've talked about what is that really measuring, the VIX? I mean, it's measuring the volatility of the S&P 500 or the components of it. And you can get a great sense of what vol looks like just looking at if you were to take the ETF that tracks the S&P 500, the SPY, and you just look at the at the money put in the call. And I'll give you a sense of what's being implied for movement over the period of time between then and the expiration. And that's how I like to think about it. And I usually express views in the vol market through SPY options. I think we should have an on-the-tape casino trip. What's your place, like Borgata or something, Danny Moses? Like you probably I love Borgata. Have- I'll yeah, pick you that- up on the way down. If, you, if you'll leave your house, I, I will take you there. I think it would be fun if the three of us maybe call AD, bring her down, and we could teach. I know I could teach Dan Nathan how to play craps. Yeah. I could teach the game pretty much better than anybody you've ever met, Danny Moses, just so we understand each other. I will tell you this. My highlight of every trip to Atlantic City over the last 25 years is a late night stop at the White House. You guys ever been to the White House? Of course. The cheesesteak. The Philly cheesesteak. Exactly. amazing. Guy, you're not teaching me anything about crap. My first game on Atari was Casino. Okay. I know the odds in that place. I invented a game and sold it to Shuffle Master called Crapjack. Hold on. You might or may not be aware of it. Slow down for a second. You invented a game. Yep. And you sold it to who? Shuffle Master. Look at you. It's a well-known company. We'll talk about Crapjack. 
Okay, we'll we'll talk about that some other time. By the way, Amanda Diaz, who who does an amazing job for us, I mean, she can chime in at some point, and she will tell you. I just want to chime in that you, when we were in Vegas, you taught me how to play craps, and I won so much money that I paid my rent that month. Say that again. Wow. Wow. Just say that one more time, please. <laughs> Which was That's- like, you know, in New York prices, it was like 3200 It was Wow, God. That is a true yeah. story. That is an absolute true story. Who was rolling the dice? No, it was some other schmo. You were just telling me what to do. I was just explaining to her. I, I was there, and I get no credit. I was plying you with drinks. Well, you also <laughs> you gave me the chip that turned it into. Oh, so I funded that little expedition. We, we had a great we had a great time. That was a, that was a fast money trip yeah. to Las Vegas. That's so fun. So that's for you on the tape, fans. That's Amanda Diaz chiming in just to verify my story, so you don't think I'm fugazi because I know Danny Moses thinks I'm full. That any. <laughs> Anyway, I'm glad you ripped off tape. Just to put a bow on this, there are other earnings coming out this week. The most interesting one out of the list that we gave you and out of the list we didn't mention, McDonald's. That comes out MCD. Why do I mention the McDonald's? Well, I like saying it, number one. And just look at what's going on with Domino's and CMG over the last couple of weeks. My sense is, that's just my spidey sense, that McDonald's is about to have a meaningful breakout to the upside Post earnings release. Guys, the last couple of weeks on Wednesday of this week, Chipotle was up what 13, 14% after its results. And what do you uh, call that, Dan Nathan? Uh, a burrito blowout. Yes, That's thank you. you. A burrito okay. blowout. Yes, I coined that phrase. I didn't sell it to Shuffle Master, but I coined the phrase. <laughs> and then on Thursday, Domino's was up nearly 16% after its results. And to your point, Guy, McDonald's, it's been consolidating between like 230 and like 238 over the last three or four months or so. And if you have a, a beaten raise, that thing is ripping. Off to the races. Danny Moses, I have a question for you. I will answer this question first. When I do go to McDonald's, which I would say is a problem approximately five to seven times a year, I will get five cheeseburgers, large fry, medium Coke, and maybe if they're doing all day breakfast, I'll throw a couple egg McMuffins. Danny Moses, what is your McDonald's of choice? Honestly, it's probably twice a year and it's a Big Mac. And if it's a, it's a Sunday hangover, kind of oh. 11 a.m., where am I? <laughs> fries, large Coke, and Big Mac. That's my go-to. So. Big, Big Mac is too messy. I haven't had a Big Mac literally since I was in high school. See, if I had to choose between a Big Mac and the Whopper, to me, the Whopper is the best sandwich out there. No Whopper, way. no tomato over Big Mac every day. Dan Nathan, you, McDonald's, Burger King, what do you – I think the people, people want to know. Yeah, I am not a fan of Burger King. I really do enjoy McDonald's. My order, and to Danny's point, sometimes I'm coming back from a long weekend somewhere. You do the math on a Sunday morning. I'm in an airport. I'll hit a quarter pounder with cheese, fries, orange drink, and maybe I'll even top it off to fill in the cracks with a, Excuse me? a, ten, a 10-piece chicken McNuggets with strong sauce. Wow. I really want to be sitting next to you on that flight for two hours after that. <laughs> Very Jeez. strong. Very strong. Now, there's something apparently I, I'm learning about this, and you know, for a lot of times, I, I say it all the time on Fast Money, not only am I a participant, but I'm a viewer. So I've learned about this, this crypto and the Bitcoin and the Ethereum, which has an E, not an I, and all these different things. And what people have told me is it's decentralized, which in my mind means one person can't control things, decentralized. So why in, in my world can somebody like that Elon Musk character, Dorsey, Kathy Wood, why can they say something? Three people have a meaningful impact on the Bitcoin, on the Ethereum, on the entire complex, Dan Nathan. Riddle me that because it makes no sense to me. 
Well, it's funny. You bring up a really good point, Kai. There's a lot of talk of these stable coins. Danny had an excellent rot last week on Tether. We're going to get into that a little bit, but you're seeing a lot of central banks consider doing their own stable coins. The the idea of having a Tether or some of these other ones. Um, and just so you know, I mean, Tether, what, Danny, is what, like the fifth largest crypto out there? Top I, I think three, that- I think. Yeah. And so, so, so there's a lot of criticism of the notion that central banks might get into it because that is a, obviously a very centralized sort of mechanism, if you will, who would kind of control that. But the influencer aspect of it, Guy, I mean, I think that's pretty interesting. Obviously, Kathy Wood has been investing in Bitcoin. I think it was one of the first mutual funds ever to have Bitcoin in it. And she's a true believer. Jack Dorsey and all of his businesses is thinking crypto first in a lot of ways. He's thinking about the unbanked around the world and the opportunities that that it has for Square, Title, and Twitter. But at the end of the day, these things work because there are network effects. It's basically, I know a lot of people, critics would say it's a bit of a, a greater fool's theory in a way, but they were getting pretty ground down. If you think about Bitcoin and Ethereum and down what, like 55, 56% from their April highs here, it wasn't going to take much, I guess, to get them to bounce. I think uh, he was trying to get anonymous off of his back, Musk. And I think when he mentioned that Oh, SpaceX owns it. By the way, let me just disclose that now. Oh, and I personally own the Dogecoin and I own Ethereum and I own Bitcoin and I'm a pumper, not a dumper. Oh, and by the way, I really care about the environment. Oh, hold on a second. I just signed a nickel deal with BHP, the biggest environmental disaster company in the history of Brazil. But anyway, I digress, as Guy said. But listen, it moved up, it moved back down. I think the thing was probably near term oversold anyway. And I won't get into that, but I will say, Regarding Tether, one of your colleagues from CNBC, Deirdre Bosa, did an amazing- Debo. What is it? Debo. Debo. Guy and I, we nicknamed her what? Last was she year? at the craps Debo? table too? Was no, she, she was not. We too? say Debo knows. Remember, you might remember Bo knows. We turned it into Debo knows. And we're actually having t-shirts made up, Danny. Should I get you a medium or a small? That's extra large, especially <laughs> after the Big Mac that I'm going to have on Sunday. Anyway, she was interviewing the Tether CTO and the Tether General Counsel- who must be hired, have the same PR people as Robin Hood, which I'm going to talk about in a second, also to go on something like this and talk about on the CNBC tech check. And she hammered him. I mean, she brought up all the issues. And to be frank, this is my takeaways. The CTO, the chief technology officer from Tether, had a problem because he started speaking on mute. That was the first thing. And then halfway through the interview, we lost him completely. And then he came back on. So that's your chief tech officer of a $62 billion entity. And then the general counsel was reading off script kind of like a presidential candidate. Oh, that's the question. And then he would look down and answer, that is what we do. We have a bank in the Bahamas called Dell Tech. That, that was the only bank that they disclosed. She hammered them on what kind of commercial paper is backing this. Is it international? And they say, well, we like to protect our providers, so we're not going to. Anyway, she completely hammered them. It definitely exposed them. Everybody should go and watch that. Let's talk about the Bitcoin for a second, because we've had some great guests in our six-month run of On the Tape uh, who focused on crypto. One of the things I find most interesting, I think that some of the major pillars of the bull case for, for Bitcoin have just gone away. And one of them was an inflation hedge. It was digital gold. It was a store of value. And what happened to Bitcoin in the last few months when the inflation cries and got their loudest? Bitcoin got cut in half. 
I mean, you know, it was just kind of interesting to me. And so I, I think the story for Ethereum is far more interesting at this moment than it is for Bitcoin. We know there's going to be a hard fork coming later this summer. And there's a lot of projects that are being built on Ethereum that are really excited about that. And then there's going to be this move from a proof of work to a proof of stake, which really kind of focuses a bit on some of the concerns about environmental usage for the mining and such. So to me, Ethereum looks really interesting as I think about the second half of this year. Um, if I were thinking about it in terms of would you rather, I would much rather Ethereum here at around 20,000 versus Bitcoin at 32,000. I like what you did there, Danny. Before I go to Demo, I like we should play that would you rather game. We should turn the tables, flip the script on Melissa Lee. Maybe we should play a little uh, would you rather with her? That'd be a great way to end that portion of the interview. Danny, I know you want to talk about Robin. Yeah, so if you're going to trade crypto, you can trade it on Robinhood, but here's how it works. When you file for an IPO, you file an S1. We got that three weeks ago from Robinhood, ready to go public. If there's changes or something, you need to disclose something, you file an amended S1. And a couple days ago, Robinhood came out and amended their S1 for a few things. One is they ended up putting their second quarter numbers in there, which we don't really have to talk about other than there was massive expenses in there. But two, the fine from the New York State Department of Financial Services in their crypto division wasn't the $10 million that they thought it would be. It's $30 million. And I know for people, ah, who cares? It's a multi-hundred billion, it's a $50 billion, $80 billion company. It doesn't matter. Well, you know what? Fines on Wall Street are not normally that that much. They had an SEC fine 65, a FINRA fine of 70, now a New York State Department of Financial Services crypto fine, and it actually fined them basically for anti-money laundering laws, cybersecurity issues related to crypto in there. And obviously, they're trying to sweep everything here is under the rug here so they can get public. But I want to say this. This was the last statement in their amended S-1 from the second quarter. We also saw an increase in legal sediments and reserves related to the settlement from the New York DFS matter and an increase in fraudulent deposit transactions and chargebacks related to our cash management offering for the three months ended June 30th, 21. Oh, also effectiveness on our IPO, we're going to be recognizing a share-based compensation expense of a billion dollars. And that's related to us just going public and giving it to the management. So anyway, in a nutshell, if you're trading on that platform, just know they violate anti-money laundering laws, cybersecurity issues. Some deposits don't even count. And the cash management is bad. Other than that, it's a great place to trade. And I'm really looking forward to that IPO. It sounds as if you just, you not only ripped off the tape once, you ripped off the tape twice. It's like the 40-year-old virgin when they're doing, we're waxing his chest. Uh, you just did you know that, basically, that's a God, great scene, so by the do, do you guys know that, that Steve Carell did that for real? Well, you could see he was bleeding if you watch. I mean, he's actually bleeding through his shirt. So, Guy, here's a question from you. Oh, at, I like At the questions. time in April- in the lead up to the Coinbase IPO. It was a direct listing. It was dealt a little differently. I think a lot of the issues that they had from their big retail frenzy back in 17 were kind of already behind them. And I think the company learned a lot. But there was a lot of people thinking that the sentiment that was building into that IPO was probably not a great setup for crypto. And since then, what's happened, guys? Yeah, it went from 64th. It literally marked the top within a week, yeah. I think, yeah. of Bitcoin. I think within a, within a couple of days. So, so do we run the same risk with equities? Because I actually want to get to some thoughts for like second half or how we play the rest of the summer. You know, we know that there's a couple events here. We know that the Fed meeting, there is a chance. You know, Danny, you started out by saying earlier that we all know what's going to happen at the Fed meeting, right? There might be a scenario where they throw a little bit of a curveball here. Equities, I'm not so sure what we saw on Friday and Monday of this last week is done. I just don't believe that we could have that sort of short-term volatility 
off of a high and be done where we are at this point in the year. So I'm just curious what you guys think, because I have some ideas as we get by next week's Fed meeting, and then we have this long stretch into Jackson Hole in the end of August. Yeah, I think the market's now trying to figure out is if we actually are slowing down, we've talked about this before, is the market expensive? And the answer is yes. Would you get even more stimulus? Not for a while. It would take a pretty good sell-off, I think, in the stock market to do that. So I think we're kind of in flux here. And as I said, when we kick things off today, the earnings are backwards looking. So any impact that's going to have could be a slowdown. I know the airlines came out and made people feel good this week with earnings. They're still seeing the bookings and so forth like that. But I agree with you, Dan. It feels like we're set up for probably another little pullback here. It's really hard to see the market moving materially higher from here. Like I said, and I would avoid that VXX because you might be right for a day, but you're going to be right for 29 of the 30 of the month. So Yeah, and to sort of echo that, JP Morgan earlier this week put a 4,600 price target on the S&P 500, which you know, if you assume $200 worth of earnings for the S&P, you're talking about something that's trading 23 times. I mean, I can do that math. And it's extraordinarily expensive, I would submit, in the environment that we find ourselves in. But people are tripping themselves to raise price targets. But to me- That 50-day moving average that we tested earlier this week, we bounced off of in a meaningful way. I do think we visit it again. Next time, I don't think we stop. And I'm of the belief, if you want my second-half playbook, like secondhand rose from Barbara Streisand, who my mother and father made us listen to when we were kids, I think interest rates are going higher. I understand that they're sort of meandering here in the 125 area, but I think they're going to be meaningfully higher by the end of this year. Let me just say, if I'm giving a second-half prediction, I don't want to give an exact number, but if rates aren't higher from here, the stock market is lower. That's what I would say. Yeah, I actually think that we're going to see the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield retest that low from Tuesday morning at 115. I think it's going to overshoot. People are going to get a little panicked. I think that's when the S&P 500, to Guy's point, breaks that 50-day moving average. And then it's kind of contending with that double bottom in May, which is about 40.50. And I think we maybe get close, Guy. We know that that 200-day moving average is at 39.10. Maybe we get it that that at some point this summer, we're going to see 4,000. We're going to see it touch that 200-day moving average. And then I think you want to buy it. And I'm going to tell you, why the other reason why you're going to want to buy it because rates will have actually bounced off of like one percent and guy you might get you had a great call on rates earlier this year you said we're gonna when we're at one percent to start the year you said we're going to two percent well we almost got there we got close to 1.8 and i think we're going to see a shakeout in the market and it's going to be a good setup for maybe the last three or four months of the year and then also stocks probably go up with rates and they probably end the year somewhere closer to that two percent The three of us have given you, our audience, our second half prediction, but I have a prediction, see what I did there, for the second half of this show. Coming up, stick around, TV's Melissa Lee, host of Fast Money, host of Options Action, and host of a myriad of other shows when she fills in. Coming up, Melissa Lee. Next guest needs no introduction, but in case you haven't heard of her living under a rock or something, Melissa Lee is a host of CNBC's Fast Money and Options Action. In her tenure at the network, Melissa has been a member of the ensemble cast of Power Lunch and served as co-anchor of Squawk on the Street. Melissa has also reported for a number of documentaries, including The Rise of the Machines and Porn, Business of Pleasure. We'll have more on that one in a few minutes, folks. Prior to joining CNBC in 2004, Melissa worked for Bloomberg TV and CNN Financial News. She's a Harvard graduate, and we're all lucky enough to call her our friend. Melms, it's an honor to have you 
on the tape. Do 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 do. It's not. You want me to? There it is. There. Looks like the Blue Origin capsule. <laughs> oh my god. I got a nice shout out from Courtney last night about your haircut. But but what did you say, guy? I don't know. Oh, I said it's amazing what pomade can do. I used the pomade line. Did you call pomade? Pomade. pomade. It's funny because you basically just matted down that do. That's what you did. I matted it down, which when I mat it down, it makes it look a little darker than it actually is. Well, but it's at my wet. age, wet with pomade. <laughs> no, I think when at it's age, when it what, when guys? it's slicked, the you know it hides the gray. I think or something to that effect. But listen, you know when you're 77 years old, you don't look a day over 76. Yeah, and you still really, <laughs> really yeah. don't. Hey, so guy, we got in here and Mel, Who's we, you and Melms, Mel and I, and. uh this is her first podcast, like proper podcast. Like with a real mic yeah. and headphones. Yeah. And well, she was talking for like a couple minutes. She didn't have her headphones on. She couldn't hear Diaz. Because I'm not used to having to wear headphones I'm when broadcasting. Guys learned how to do all this stuff. He's a jack of all trades. I want people to understand that Melissa and I first met. Now, this is my first real recollection of meeting you face to face. Now, understand, I'm not a CNBC employee. I'm a contributor to CNBC. So we're not invited to all your reindeer games, like all the fun things you guys and gals do within the halls of CNBC. But I think NBC, or maybe it was a CNBC, had some event, I want to say, at the New York Public Library. Is that correct, Melms? There was an event at the New York Public Library. And you were there, and this is prior to you taking over for Dylan Radigan. So you were there, and you were there with Mary Thompson, and that was the first time we really chatted like human beings. I remember it. I'm sure you have zero recollection, but I do remember it. I remember that, but the first time I met you was on set, obviously, at Fast Money, and I came on as a reporter with a hit, and I had to stand at the end of the desk and be grilled by you guys. Stop. Grilled. I mean, grilled. that is complete. That is just a falsehood. You were not grilled. I mean, I was terrified. Do you remember who was there by any chance? It was you, Mackie. So good. I want to say Tim. Tim Seymour or Tim Strazzini? No, Seymour. Right. You. And maybe Pete. Or, you know, I think by then bowling had probably but, but, left. But, you know, so guys, was... this is actually a really important point that Mel just made. So the first week that I did CNBC oh, in stop. Now, Dan's going to tell me what a, a dick second. I was. Okay, Hold on ahead, a second. Please. <laughs> okay. So Mel was obviously already the host of CNBC's Options Action. And she had just taken over for Fast Money. Is that right? In That's early correct. 2009. March of 2009, I believe. Is that right? So yes. this is this is playing off what Mel just said, and it's kind of an indictment to your old demeanor on set here. Okay, so they asked me, so I get a little more play on the network. They said, we want you to go on Fast Money one night. We want you to stand on the end of the desk, and we want you to preview. It was AMAT's earnings, okay? And so I go up there. Mel is- AMAT the- comes out applied materials for you folks playing at home. Please continue, Dan. <laughs> so Mel looks up to me, says, hey, Dan, as she will, because she's generous, because she's friendly, and not one of you guys, not one of you guys looked up and said hi, and then you grilled me. So I can empathize with Mel's- Okay, there's a scene in one of the movies, I think it's Platoon, and they said in the Vietnam, people would, they wouldn't get to know your name for a while, when because the chances are you wouldn't be around that long. So that's the way I took that. It like- 
you know, you came on one time. Why should I even get to bother to know you? There's a good chance you get whacked in a week. So it's just, it's I effort could've. that I don't need to expend. Were they grooming you to be a host? You were a reporter at the time. This is what, 08, 09? By that time, I had been substitute anchoring across the network, including Closing Bell. When Dylan was on vacation, I would often substitute. Yeah. So I was, True. I don't think I was being groomed for anything per yeah. se, yeah. but they were allowing me the opportunity to practice anchoring. Would you even know if you're being groomed? I mean, by definition, like you wouldn't know if you're being groomed. Like sometimes like in my world, you're grooming people and and the key to it is not letting them know they're being groomed. Mm. Makes sense? So it's like raising kids. Like you're grooming your kids, those two little rugrats to be (laughs) badasses. They don't even know (laughs) they're being groomed. That's a good question. True or false? True. So Dan was saying what a jerk I was when he first came on. Now, would you say, go ahead, Mel, talk about now, let's get, let's hash our dirty laundry. I think that you were very, you weren't outwardly friendly. Mm -hmm. I don't say you, I wouldn't say you were hostile or aggressive, but you just sort of like let it happen and that was it. But we were extraordinarily gracious when you, we were all excited when you came on. When I came on, you, you in particular gave me the warmest welcome. Karen immediately called me, said, let's go out to lunch or dinner. Let's get to know each other. So I wouldn't have been able to last this long if you guys didn't welcome me into the family. Because, I mean, it was like so tight knit and it still is. It's also such a different show from typical, well, I mean, CNBC's changed a lot over the years, but when you first started hosting, it was such a three or 180, I should say, from what typical daytime is. This show I think what's wonderful about this show is that people have gotten to know Melissa Lee, like they've gotten to see who you are, your personality has come through, which may be true a little in daytime. I think much more, though, on the five o'clock show. Would you agree? I would agree, because a lot of it is just, it's not scripted, and it's just our conversation. So how can you fake your way through a conversation that lasts the course of an hour for more than a decade at this point? (laughs) I agree. I mean, isn't that amazing? (laughs) And I'm going to I'm going to say this, Dan. I apologize publicly here on on the tape for being a jerk, G E R K, the first time we met on CNBC's Fast Money. Let me say a couple things. So, so as before, I ever stepped onto a set on CNBC, I used to watch a lot of the programming. I never really liked Fast Money. I actually thought it was too much of a bro down. You know what I mean? And it really Wait wasn't. A what was that? Too, too much of a what? It was just like this bro it, 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 down. Yeah, it just felt like like locker room stuff. You know, and I. It grew, was meant to be that way when right. it was conceived. Yeah, but it wasn't appealing, and so I really feel like to what guy was just saying, Mel, you really changed the whole dynamic, and I think that the show was a lot more digestible for a broader a demographic, I would say. Does that make sense? I think that, I mean, look at the original cast members, including yourself, Guy. These are all guys. A lot of bros. Who are, they're, they're guys' guys. Yeah. And it was designed that way. It was built around a male host that had a lot of testosterone. And it was designed to be the after the game, so to speak, after the trading day show where you all go to the locker room yeah. and you talk about it. Yeah. And that was how it was conceived. So it's not a surprise that it was oriented towards males. But when you change the host to somebody who's obviously not filled with testosterone, <laughs> the show has to change too. Probably the most challenging job you could have taken at the time to do on the entire network, if you think about it. Because it was designed, it was conceived around personalities. Yeah. And so you couldn't just drop another personality in. And so that's why the show evolved. It had to evolve in order to survive. So we kept the best of the show, the flavor of the show, the banter of the show, all of that, I think, and we changed it. 
I think it's better product. What people don't understand, and they should real quick, is the fact that obviously whoever's on the show on any given night, we've spent our careers in, in markets, trading, whatever it is, hedge funds, trading, trading, whatever the hell it is, it doesn't matter. You obviously are a journalist, but what people should understand, you have a deeper knowledge of this stuff than the people that probably half the people on the show at times. I mean, the work you do, the research you put in, the homework you do is extraordinary. The fact that you're able to answer, ask the questions that you are and then ask the questions to the people that have the bigger depth of knowledge typically in whatever subject, I mean, that takes an extraordinarily great amount of work, I would submit. Well, that's very, very kind of you. It's also very true. I mean, kind, not kind. I mean, you know that's factually true. So it's ext- the amount of work that goes into hosting that show and keeping the four of us, whoever it is on any given night, in line is really, really extraordinary. Well, keeping you guys in line is a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> and it's sport. <laughs> In terms of the guests, I mean, obviously, we have big CEOs, we've got big fund managers, whoever it is, if it's a Wall Street analyst, if it's somebody who's a researcher at some you know, research organization, you have that guest on and they're giving up their valuable time. The, the least you can do is to put a little bit of time in to understand their work, to understand their field, and to ask the right questions. And on a show like Fast, where the interviews are so short, they're often three minutes, four minutes long. You got to make the most of it. So you don't want to start with, so how's the weather? You know, it's like, no, why is the storm front coming? You know, you, you get right to it. But to get right to it, you have to understand what the issue is. So, Guy, to that point, you know that Mel keeps these notebooks, right? And, oh, uh, I have my, notebook. uh, I I have my notebook. I know you have your notebook. So how many notebooks do you have since oh. you started Fast Money? And do you keep them all because they are all. really a treasure trove, I suspect? I keep them all. And sometimes I go back like 2009 and flip open a page and just see what was yeah. the story then, that particular day. It could be an upgrade or a downgrade. It could be, you know, whatever it is. And the notebooks aren't filled necessarily even with things of that day. It's just it maybe a research report that I came across that I might find useful down the road. And that, that down the road could be tomorrow. It could be next week. It could be three months from now. It could be a year from now. I've gone back and looked at, and thought, oh, there was a study Last year, I think it was in August, and I would just go back because I won't remember enough to Google it, but I'll remember the date, oddly. No, it's not odd. I mean, you know, in, in a lot, believe it or not, folks, I mean, as different as the two of us are, and we are vastly different, there are some similarities <laughs> because I do the same thing. I have copious notes from years, like literally over a decade ago that I keep, and from time to time, I'll go back and look, and I do keep notes in terms of what we're going to talk about on the show on any given night. And it's important to go back and have context and try to have some level of continuity. And obviously, those were skills that you learned when you were in high school at Great Neck East, if you recall. <laughs> Great Neck South. That's what I said. Great Neck North, which is, which is, and what you guys were the, the what, the Wildcats or something. What was your mascot? It used to be the Rebels. But no, that's problematic. I, I that's been changed since. So if I say the, I'm going to say a word. This is a one word association game. You know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say a word. You tell me what you think of. Are you ready for this game? You're going to say panache. Um, see that? Folks, is that just what so you're you know, say? I was going to say panache and you right? were going to tell folks why that is funny. Now, the fact that you knew that speaks volumes as to the fact that I'm in your head. I live in your head. And from time to time, <laughs> I, you find yourself in my head. Yeah, I, I'd like to visit. I've got yeah, a visa. But only to visiting because it gets scary. So no, tell, I do not want to stay the, there. Talk to the fans. What is panache? Like, why is that a funny word? 
So there was a kid in my high school class named Isaac. I won't use his last name, but Isaac, if you're listening, you know exactly where this is going. But this word separated him from a perfect SAT score. It was the one thing that he did not know on the entire test. And think about how perfect that is. Somebody that would get a perfect score, and by definition, they wouldn't know what panache is. (laughs) And panache is the word that stumped him. I won't use his last name, but... I looked him up on the LinkedIn years ago I know. and you reached connected out to with him. him. I know. I mean, how good he, he is that? He verified the story, so, right? He verified the story. And that probably haunts him to this day. I'm sure. I mean, just like, I mean, I can remember it. He certainly can remember it. That's for sure. And I think I've brought it up on the show once or twice, which is great. But he anyway, went to Princeton, Dan, so it all turned out fine. All right. So, so Mel, tell us a little bit about Guy said he lives in your head. You, you, you know, you'll stop in his head every once in a while. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that I hear all the time, the first thing that when I ever meet somebody who is a fan of the show, they always ask about Melissa Lee. Guy, you will uh, admit that. And usually it has something to do with like, I love that Melissa. That guy is a bit dense. You know, so it's like that's it's like a bookend True. sort of thing. How do you guys have this special relationship? So obviously, Guy is the the only lasting original cast member. You said he was great to you finally when you you took over hosting. What is it about the relationship? You got nicknames for each other. You guys could finish each other's sentences on the air. He's like a warm blanket, I would assume, on most nights. Maybe when sometimes things are kind of going, you know, A-wire. yeah, a little bit. Tell us a little bit about that. I don't really know what is behind this relationship, but all I know is that Guy is the rock for me when it comes to doing the show. And I know if he's on, everything around me can go wrong. But if he's there, it'll it'll work out. It will be fine. And I mean, that's really irreplaceable. Well, that's sweet of you to say. Now, look, first of all, as you know, and you often point out correctly, by the way, I'm not that bright, number one, which is always something fun to go back to. But it comes down to trust, right? And I think we both know that we're not going to tee the other one up. We have each other's back. I mean, There's a lot that goes into it. I mean, this is live TV every night from five to six, every night, you know, in terms of Melissa now, it's going to be 13, 13 years for you in March, which is just remarkable. And it it takes a level of trust to, you know, have that kind of relationship on air. And she knows that, you know, if things are going off the rails, she can look to me typically when we're together, you know, we'll sort it out together. It's a little more challenging now. This virtual world makes the show that we do a little more difficult, yet we've been able to figure it out together. Yeah. And I think that is because we have that long running relationship prior to COVID. I think that really helped. But, you know, being on set, you can read each other's body language. You can read each other's expressions. I can know when guy's eyes glaze over that he's bored or he's lost his train of thought. No, that never happens. (laughs) That never happens. I'm just joking. (laughs) But I can trust him period. And I can trust you. You know, it's that's the foundation of the family. We had a lot of fun prior to COVID, prior to your maternity leave, where I was sitting immediately to the left of you and Guy immediately to the the left of me. And I've always found that to be like the most fun. We we have a great, all the guys are great and gals are great, but like that was really fun. And I loved catching your glances at him across me. And then the only thing I got Guy from her every once in a while is like a hardcore eye roll. You know what I mean? Like, is that fair too? Because the eye rolls are the, the best. The love that she has for you, she has like mild disdain for me so often. <laughs> that's is that shtick. fair, Mel, or no? That's shtick. Are you sure? Yes. Okay. I'm absolutely sure. And the great thing about Melissa is, I mean, I think folks that watch the show understand this intuitively. She does not suffer fools. So if somebody comes in and tries to sort of bullshit their way through things, she's not going to tolerate that 
let's take a step back. We talked about how you guys met on Fast Money. How, Mel, how did you get here? I think a lot of people ask. They literally say to me all the time, she's so smart. Why is she stuck with you guys? That's one. <laughs> but B, like, how did you get here? Because, you know, Guy just mentioned how, you know, your understanding of so many of these topics. Did you follow markets? Did you follow finance? What did you study in school? And how did you get into covering financial markets? I studied government in school. I was pre-med for a brief moment in time and then flunked basically organic Oh, stop. Well, hold on a second. Guy, stop guy, for a second. What was her grade it. that she flunked it? It was an stop, A minus? Stop for was it one an a second. Minus? I mean, that is patently, you've never flunked no, anything no, I in your life, number I, one. I, I said I effectively flunked it. In, in your world, you got like oh, a B plus. Yeah. And that's like, oh my God, <laughs> I, mean, I can't go I home. I had to switch gears pretty quickly. But anyway, during college, I worked on the school newspaper. I did internships at the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal. I got on the business news track because I got my first internship at the New York Daily News, and they placed me in the business section. And there was a great editor there named Sabrina White. And the whole staff, they basically took me under their wing. I was the only intern there. And I just learned that this whole world existed, covering small businesses, basic sort of New York City stuff. I learned about earnings reports, which I I just didn't know anything about that prior. And this is freshman year in college, and, and that sort of opened my eyes. So then I went on to intern at the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post business section, Wall Street Journal again. And I just, I loved it. I mean, it sort of got me hooked. I knew that journalism was always an interest and this business news thing. I thought, wow, this is a world I had never known existed prior. So that sort of sparked my love of it. But I mean, after that, I, I was a consultant after college because I had to pay student loans. I got to the point where they said, you can go to business school, come back, work three years, work off your debt, and then so be it. And I said, no, I don't, I don't want to sign that contract and make that commitment. So then I went back to journalism. I moved home. I lived with my parents. I worked at CNN FN as a production assistant. I rolled prompter. I printed scripts. I got coffee. You know, all the stuff that, you know, you hear of in terms of paying your dues. And I did that. Then I went to Bloomberg, got on air there, went to CNBC. Now, your love of journalism started long before that. You sent a letter, a handwritten letter to somebody. And yes. that I think that probably wow. was the key to all of this stuff. True or false? I sent a letter to Kaidi Tong, who was the newscast anchor for WABC, the local ABC station in New York. And she was so gracious. She invited me to set. So my mom and I went and I met everybody. I got their autographs, which like thrilled me. I had this little tiny notebook and I got their autographs. I took a picture with her on set, which I still have. I had permed hair, by the way. So. I, think, I, think, I think that's been displayed on Fast Money Guy. I Isn't think that so. Picture? 100%. It's a it's, great it's picture, like eight-year-old Melissa Lee. I mean, that is fantastic. So you were a hustler from the get-go. You were basically, you wanted I was writing, to go after it. Yeah, I wrote the head of... CBS recruiting because I wanted an internship because my favorite program was 60 Minutes. And I thought, oh, if I can only get an internship at 60 Minutes. And she said, she was nice enough to call me in. She's like, look, I can give you an internship, but go out there and learn how to write. And that's how I got the internship at the New York Daily News because she set me straight. She's like, actually get some skills. You can't touch anything here. We're a union shop. So make your choice. And I said, okay, I'll follow your, your advice. And that's how it happened. But it's amazing. All these, it just shows you that you take a couple minutes of your time with somebody at that, imp you know, impressionable age or at that moment in time, and it can make a huge difference in, in their lives because those moments made a difference. You probably hear from people, I would imagine, Mel, you hear from people all the time, you know, that pay it forward stuff. And I know for a fact that you have reached out to people that have reached out to you. I mean, the impact you can make on people's lives 
is pretty significant. I mean, just think about all the lives you've touched. I mean, is there any story that sticks out to you in terms of I've got this probably email in today's world, but maybe handwritten letters from somebody. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to respond to that person. There, yes, absolutely. I mean, there was this young girl and she wrote with her father and said that she was a huge fan. She watched the show and she wanted to come to set. So I said, sure. And so she, I mean, she came to set. She's still too young. I don't know if she went on to pursue journalism, but absolutely. And then you think about every other interaction, you know, we get a lot of pages through the page program. Think of how many pages we've gone through through the years and we give them a good experience. And it gives me such pride to see that these pages go on to be hired at CNBC or hired at MSNBC or NBC. And they they start a career here because of their experience with our show. So I think it's a real testament to what we have, not just professionally, but just on a personal level. All of us are willing to make that time because we realize the impact we can all have on an individual. Yeah, Guy Adami is, uh, you are- He's number one. You are number one number in the one. mentor camp. I, yeah. I, there's so many <laughs> stories that I hear from people <laughs> that you've never even mentioned to me. And you and I talk five times a day about people that you're affecting. So shout out to to you. Well, Mel, you started out as a reporter. You at CNBC, you know, obviously, people see you all day. You, you said that you used to fill in. Like There's days now still where we see you first thing in the morning, and then we'll see you in Power Lunch, and then we'll see you on set at Fast Money. Um, the endurance it must take to do that is remarkable, but you've also gravitated towards the long-form stuff you've done. I remember the Coca-Cola docs. There was one on cannabis. There was one on Bitcoin. There's one other. I can't remember. Uh, There's one on porn. Oh, Mel. So what? what, what <laughs> Wait a second. What was that? Well, I missed yeah. that. I was, I was, I was sending that a text would be, message. That would be the pornography to you, oh, Guy. Oh, goodness. Um, well, this is a wow. PG-rated show, and, and Mel. Wait, hold on a second, Dan. And did, was there an extensive amount of research that went into that documentary? I did do my research. Guy, put it this way. I've watched all her docs. I've seen her drink Coca-Cola. I saw her go to a uh, like a growing field for the cannabis. Yeah. I saw you go to a Bitcoin miner. So what did you have to do to kind of uh, oh, embed yourself in the porn doc? Well, we went we we went to set to porn sets and we watched how they filmed it. I know we want to talk about this, but I just want folks to understand something. You know, Tim Seymour and I, Tim and I went to college together. We've known each other a long time, but we are convinced that Mel will feign ignorance on certain things. And we say, you're leading us down the primrose path, which, by the way, I don't know what the frickin' primrose path is, but I know for a fact you do that all the time and you take great joy in doing that. True or false? Well, I would say it's true 50% of the time. The other 50%, I genuinely don't know what you're talking about <laughs> and, have, and will ask and it leads to something else. Or I'll say something that's inadvertently in your twisted minds meaning something else. Right. We won't go down that road. But for those that have the hard copy of the Urban Dictionary, typically they reside in that in that publication, Dan, I'm sorry. Please continue. No, I was. I was also <laughs> going to say that guy. You probably asked over the years, Melissa, a hundred, maybe two hundred questions about music or sports references. And what's your oh, answer? Yeah. Help, Mel. What's your answer? It depends on the question. Dan. No, but I mean, usually I'm not... it's a yes, yeah, sure. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, right, sure. Guy, but uh, well, that's the, the the genius of that. I've been get, getting really good at answering guy in a way that would convince people who are listening in the conversation that I actually knew what I was talking about. Yeah, fair enough. I think. Which is great. That's part of the shtick. I, I mean, I think it's, first of all, I love doing it. I think it's fantastic. You know, I'll ask this 30-second question about, you know, the Rangers draft tonight and who should, do you think they should pick this guy over that guy? And you and you'll be like, yeah, I do. And it's like, yeah, exactly. Mel, see, you get it intuitively. And it's just, and people are like, really? She understands? I'm like, of course she doesn't understand it. But, it's, but it makes for, su- I think it's, 
I love it. I think that's what makes the show, for me, that's what makes the show a lot of fun. All right, Mel, it's kind of interesting when you think about, you know, our show got decentralized during the pandemic, right? We all went remote, but something really interesting happened. We had the, the shortest market crash ever, right? The f- the fastest, I think, 30% plus decline, and then the, the quickest recovery out of a bear market, if you think about it. But there were some other dynamics at play, right? So we had a lot of people, new entrants to the market. We saw the numbers as it relates to crypto wallets, as it relates to Robinhood and the, and the, and the like, that sort of thing. Do you feel like the dynamic like really changed? I mean, to me, Guy and I would tell you there's always been, if you want to call this them stocks and stuff mm-hmm. like that around certain stories, a certain, but crypto, and we've seen that too. What is interesting to you about these changing dynamics? And do you think it's the sort of thing that there's going to be roots from here on out that are just kind of going to stick in this market and grow as it relates to retail investing? I think that there could be. I mean, I think unlike previous periods where the markets were in favor in terms of people wanting to trade it. There wasn't the existence of social media. And so these people are simultaneously finding community and ideas via social media. And it could be just Twitter following actual people in the financial world, or it could be following a TikTok influencer who's 20-something, lives in Miami, and has more than a million followers and is telling you to do something or invest in something or suggesting this or that. So I do think it's a little bit different in terms of the context in which this frenzy is happening. And I think that's why we all saw GameStop and then we saw AMC. AMC is lasting a whole lot longer, I think, than a lot of people thought. This whole thing is lasting a lot longer than a lot of people thought. And I think that speaks volumes. I mean, we're reopening and it's granted it's getting a little quieter because it's summer, but at the same time, you, you, you don't see these quote unquote meme stocks disappearing. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I think your point about virality and finfluencers, financial yeah, yeah. influencers, is really listen. There's always been people hawking stock stories, right? Or whatever newsletters, but they, but they, chat yeah, rooms, always, right? Yeah. But they didn't have the ability to go viral, and that's really what's changed. You know, Yahoo chat boards or AOL chat boards in the late '90s. It was really this small ecosystem could kind of understand the story and they could push it around, but it didn't. It didn't bubble up, and I think that's um, really interesting. The one thing I'd say about GameStop and AMC and any of these others that you want to throw in there, just look at crypto and look how easy it is for some of these altcoins to go, you know, have a frenzy yeah, and go away. And that's the one thing I would just caution people because a lot of very smart market commentators will say, well, that, that they're just divorced of any economic reality. Well, sooner or later, like the chickens guy, what's the chickens and the roost? You have a little I don't know. They got to come home or something. Yeah, I mean, they they that's home. another one of those dopey things. Chickens coming <laughs> home to like roost. They like they can't roost exactly other places. Roost? Yeah, I mean, you can roost I anywhere. I think you can pick up and roost. But that's the one thing I would just caution is that we talk about it on our show all the time. AMC was losing money pre-pandemic in sure. 2019, right. and they're not going to be doing better from a financial no. standpoint, right? Like, no, so, they're yeah. not. But they're not going to go out of business anymore. At right. least it looks like it according to the capital that they've raised. So yeah. the story has changed. Their shareholder base is now 80% retail. I just think that this is and has been a phenomenon that a lot of people in financial media wanted to dismiss because they couldn't understand it and there weren't fundamentals. And I think sometimes in the stock market, there aren't fundamentals to back something. There have been momentum trades throughout history. This is just another one of them. And instead of some smart hedge fund doing it, 
it's a bunch of retail investors, and why should we discount it in terms of the impact on the markets? Because it is having an impact on the markets. It certainly had an impact, at least on AMC. It has had an impact on the way companies perceive retail investors and how they have to communicate with retail investors. More and more are doing things like YouTube webcasts or live streams because they acknowledge that this is a change to get at this generation of investor. I don't know if that's going to go away. You've interviewed hundreds, if not thousands of people. Is there one guy, gal that you would love to interview for our, either our show or for a doc or for another show that you haven't yet? Hmm. I like that. Hmm. Elon Musk. So, now, it's interesting. You mentioned Elon Musk. I was, I knew you were going to say or that. Did now, you tell know the that? folks at did home. Did you know that? Elon Musk, what do they call that thing when you block somebody on Twitter? Called blocking. Oh, yeah. Blocking on Twitter. Didn't yeah. he? Didn't he block you on Twitter? I was blocked by Elon Musk for a while. I don't know why. I don't know but what you, I did to him. Maybe but it was you're unblocked now. So unblocked. is there any way? I mean, I think it would be a great interview for you. I mean, it, have you reached out to him? Have you attempted that? Not recently. Not recently. But there's so much to talk about. So much to talk about. Well, Mel, I would Crypto, say that you were always really fair about the Tesla story because that is like of this period, that is the meme, that's the meme stock OG, if you will, right? And 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 he is just he gets all the virality, he gets all of it. And so I thought you were always fair about that, pushing back at us who are like at times were perma bears on it. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I think that it's always my role to take the opposite side, yeah. no matter what. If you guys were all perma bulls, yeah. I would have been the perma bear. Yeah. And I want to take it not as I see it, but just take it as it is. That's why I sort of – I look at the meme stock frenzy. I'm like, okay, this is something we need to cover because it's happening in the markets. It's not going away. It's having an impact. It's a story. Just like Musk, whether you like him or not, it's a great story. Well, there's uh, from a sentiment standpoint, I think it's really important in the fact that retail has been heavily involved in both of them. Yeah. It's interesting that the point you make about pushing back, I kind of over the years have gotten labeled what I do in markets, and I'm not contrarian for the sake of being contrarian, but you know, as I was like the last guy on this panel, usually when you're going around the horn, if everybody had the same view on Tesla or Apple, I might take the other side of it because I think from, and I think this is what you're getting at from a host standpoint, I mean, it's not particularly useful to a viewer if everybody's in agreement all the time and we don't hear the other side of the story. Right. If the only voices you hear are saying something like, oh, the markets are taking a breather, it's going to go higher. We recommend you buying on the dip. You know, that's that's not valuable. What do you do when you when you trigger somebody? What do they call that when you trigger somebody? When you trigger somebody. You exactly. That's exactly right. Now, listen, This is there's some been some, I mean, we've been together a long time. I mean, you could make a two-hour highlight reel of some of the stuff that's going on. But one of my all-time favorites, we had that cat on from that maleb, maleb I can't even say the word. Was, remember that? Oh, that it was whole the Rare thing? Earth Sky. It was, Mo- was Molly Corp, which is now Corp. M- MP Materials. Now, separate can you company, tell, different can, company. Now. This is a great story because you base, you talk about bubbles and then bubbles bursting. Well, I would submit, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you were the pin that burst that bubble. And you want to tell that story real quick because I love it. I think it's so great we, stuff. Fast Money, as Fast Money always has been, we've been on the cusp of the cutting edge, the hottest trends, the hottest fads, whatever you want, bubbles, whatever you want to call it. Rare Earths was one of them. And we got the CEO of Molly Corp, MCP back then, and basically 
I led him down a path of questioning that Hold got on, him what to was say, that? say that again. I didn't hear you. I that. led him down a path uh-huh. of questioning. So this happened. This this happens with other people as well. <laughs> it wasn't so a please. primrose path. It was just a path. It was a line of questioning, and eventually he said that he thought there was a bubble in rare earths prices. And th- what was the subsequent move in the stock? It, oh, straight down. Straight down as we yeah, were, as we basically went out to break. Didn't I have to fix uh, one of our most famous guest trades in that stock one time, guy, back in uh, 2014? Uh, Reg- I believe it was yeah. Regis Philbin, if, yeah, if, we if memory serves. And and that was, that was I think, created the great line that we use to this day. And Regis, rest in peace. But Dan knows a lot, I think, was on the back end of that trade correction, whatever you call it. So, Mel, what are the most fun days on the market? Is it when like, like the market's screaming or those periods where the market's careening lower? Are there some things that you find more interesting covering on the day-to-day? I think, and people are going to think that I'm just a bear, but I think it's much more interesting on a day when the markets are lower. And I think it's it's because people are at home and they're they're looking at their portfolios and like thinking, what is going on? What should I do? And that's when you can really provide a service to people, when you can try and help them through, give them some answers, um, make sense out of a move like that. When it's higher, that's great. But what, what, what do you talk about at that point? So you just said a service. I mean, you obviously take this very seriously. You know, like some of us try to be a bit entertaining as we're doing it. That's not your job. Your job is to kind of get the best information from your panel or the guests and get it to. So do you think that you as a host have a very large responsibility to kind of get to it and, and really provide a service, if you will? Oh, yeah. I mean, every single night, I hope that we do provide a service. I mean, I think entertainment is part of it. I don't think anybody... People tune into the show because they want to tune in. We're not passive viewing because we're not on during market hours. So this is appointment viewing. And so the only way you're going to get people to tune in is if it is entertaining. And if I'm not having fun on the show, nobody else is having fun on the show either. So that's why I indulge you guys when you guys go off on your little reindeer games, you know, joking around. I mean, it's it's fun for us. And that makes it fun for people to watch. And if that's the way we can get our message you know, the education across, then that's what we have to do. And that's what we do. What's your favorite? There have been many games over the I mean, my personal, when we do the taste test stuff, I mean, oh, that to me is like just that's, genius. I love it when you I have mean, your blindfold on. So and good. Handing you whatever to taste. And you oh, just, it's, it's, I mean, it's, that really shows how much. Rate, do you think on that stuff? Has he ever? Does he have a good hit rate? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think no, are you kidding me? I'm like, like it's so it's accurate. unbelievable. It's like the differential it's scary between like four, four chicken sandwiches. Yeah. Like that um, stuff. And he always nails it. Always nails it. It's the craziest thing. So I coined the game around the holiday time. By the way, it's holiday season, Mel, as you're probably going to point so out it's around in the like within a week or so, it's you know, how the it's the holiday season. I'll ask what holiday and, you know, that gag never gets old. But I, I coined this game. Wrap it or scrap it, which around the holidays is just brilliant. That's you brilliant. obviously sort of kiboshed it, but is I there didn't. a game that you enjoy more than any other games of traded or faded or what you know, deer hunting or whatever we call that other thing? We don't, yield do, hunting? We don't do hunting games anymore because of the violence associated with hunting. But I think I think traded or faded is really ultimate fast money. 
ultimate fast. I'm not a fan of the games. I don't like the games. I know. I'm just being very honest. I know you don't. I, don't I love. I, I, are you kidding me? I live for I, that I, stuff. I, I like the stuff when you know Mel. You just let us go off at each other and stuff like that. That's I like it when fun. you guys interact. Yeah. I mean, when I when I can have moments where I just sit back because you guys are so interactive and you have such so much stuff to say to each other and push back on each other with, and I think. That's, I've done my job. We had Karen on this a couple months ago. And one of my, again, there's so many favorite times and little moments, but there was one time when Dan went on some rant about something and Karen said- I would agree with Dan, but then that would make me wrong. Then we'd both be wrong. <laughs> see, both see be wrong. I mean, it's just brilliant. <laughs> that was on best. live TV. She's the best. So good. Can you guys imagine Fast Money in 10 years? Fast Money in 10 years, I'll be 87 years old. Yeah. I mean, I'll hopefully I won't need a name tag to remember who I am, but you know, hopefully the show is still in existence. Like we've made when they came to us with an idea in late 2005, I thought it had a chance. I never in my wildest dreams thought we'd make it to 14 and a half years, 15 if we make it to January. And I do. I take great joy and I don't take any I never take it for granted that we have a huge responsibility and it would be an honor if we were still doing this 10 years from now, Mel. I think the same thing. I think back to the day when they asked me to be the permanent host and I wasn't sure if I could make it five years. I mean, it was such a different show. It was such a big undertaking. It was such a strong cast. I didn't know if I could sort of shoehorn my way into that mold and I didn't have to. We just sort of evolved it. And so I think that we can continue to do that. And hopefully we will be around for 10 years. Listen, first of all, for the last 12 and a half years, literally, you did all the question asking. So thank you for allowing Dan and I to ask you questions. It's been, for me, it's a lot of fun. And this is the type of stuff that goes on pre-show, post-show, and in the commercial breaks for you folks at home. But before we get out of here, we have to play a quick game of would you rather? So you ready for okay. this? Mm-hmm. So I went to, by the way, I went to a Harvard-Yale game in 1986. I still have the ticket. I will tweet out the stub for you folks at home just so you can see. But would you rather a Harvard-Yale football game or an Auburn-Alabama football game? Mel. I have to say Auburn-Alabama. Yeah, you would. Yeah, uh-huh. You know what side your bread's buttered on. Mel, thanks for joining Dan and I on the tape. Thank you, guys. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.